Amen. All right, so this semester we are doing apologetics. We are learning to defend the faith, and uh, last week we began uh, talking about proofs for God's existence, and then today we're going to talk about some more proofs for God's existence. Who can recap the two proofs that we gave last week in your own words in front of everyone in an embarrassing way? Shout it out. The teleological argument. Yes, Dr. Scott, what is that? What is the teleological argument? In your own words. You can, you can phone a friend if you need to phone a friend. Yes, it is an argument for design. Anytime you say that something happens for a reason, it assumes mind. It assumes design. So even from an atheistic worldview, when you say survival of the fittest, passing on your genes, whatever it is, it assumes a purpose. There's an end. Why are you wanting to pass on your genes? And as soon as you do that, you've jumped into the idea of design. You've jumped into the idea of mind, intelligence, etc. That is called the teleological argument. The Greek word telos means end or purpose or goal. Very good. What was the other argument? The moral argument. Exactly. What is that? Yes, so the moral argument is there is within the heart of man naturally this knowledge that there is a God and that we have offended him. That's what is already in our hearts, okay? So though different cultures have rules on when you can kill people, different cultures have rules on sexual ethics, every culture agrees you can't just kill whoever you want whenever you want. Every culture that's ever arisen in human history has agreed you can't just have any woman you want whenever you want her, whatever it might be. There is within the heart of man some universal morality. This is why when talking about ethics, people talk about World War II so much. They talk about the Holocaust, they talk about Nazis, because even if you're just completely just this immoral, you know, lecherous person, you still think, yeah, we probably shouldn't gas six million Jews. There's already something in the human heart that realizes that those things are wrong. Well, we talked about those arguments last week. Today, we're going to talk about two other arguments for God's existence. And these ones, I think, are stronger arguments, but they're also a little bit more philosophical, okay? So you're going to have to put your thinking cap on. You might have to listen to this lecture more than once, but we would encourage you uh, to do that anyway. Sometimes when you talk about philosophy, people kind of roll their eyes and they think, oh, don't give me philosophy. Let's just, let's just do Bible. Those two always go together. You understand theology and philosophy throughout most of Christian history are not separate disciplines. There is no such thing as you just reading the Bible. You are always interpreting the Bible. Does everybody understand that? Okay? You don't just come to a text without presuppositions and just read it. Your assumptions get in the way, and your culture gets in the way, and your sin gets in the way. And so you're never just reading the Bible, you're always interpreting it. And so if you don't do philosophy, you're not going to know whether or not you're bringing good or bad assumptions to the text. So with that in mind, let's get into the, uh, these last two arguments we're going to give for God's existence. And uh, they are the cosmological and the ontological arguments. Look at all these terms. Impress your friends. Okay? Next time something happens for a reason, be like, wow, did you see the teleology there? And it'll be awesome. I promise you, you'll have so many friends that will not put you in a locker, okay? The argument from causation, the cosmological argument. Let's talk about this one, okay? This is called the cosmological argument because the Greek word cosmos means world or universe, okay? It means what has been made, the cosmos. We even use that language when we talk about God made the cosmos, whatever it is we're saying, or people say cosmos, but in, in Greek we'd say cosmos. Uh, it means universe, okay? Let me give you a few passages that talk about God being the one that caused the universe. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Colossians 1.16, 
For by him, by the way, this was a passage talking about Christ. Jesus was not made. Jesus is eternal. He's always been God because this text says this about Jesus. For by him, all things were created. He is the creator God. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created, okay? So notice right out of the gate, this is an argument that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this argument from a philosophical slant, but it is a biblical argument as well. The Bible is going to say that the universe is not eternal, that there was nothing other than God until God spoke the universe into being. Okay? And so we're going to talk about this from a philosophical slant, but I also want you to see that this is a very biblical idea. Who are some major proponents of the cosmological argument? Plato, Aristotle, Moses Maimonides, St. Anselm, Thomas Aquinas, John Duns Scotus, Rene Descartes, Benedict Spinoza, Gottfried Leibniz, John Locke, and others. Notice that some of these are non-Christian thinkers. Some of them are Christian thinkers, but some of them are not. These arguments that we've been giving for God's existence don't necessarily get to who God is. We'll get to that later. These are just to overcome the hurdle of whether or not there is a God at all, okay? So notice that you even have uh, non-Christians, guys like Plato, Aristotle, uh, Maimonides, Spinoza, uh, that, uh, that would hold to this argument even though they are not Christians. What is the argument? Here's the argument, okay? I'm giving you a bunch of background info, so let's talk about what the argument is. This is the idea. If you take any event, you waking up today, you being here in theological equipping, you can trace that back through causation. Why are you here today? Well, because you got in your car. And what'd you do before that? Well, you had breakfast. And what'd you do before that? You slept last night, unless you have little kids. And what'd you do yesterday? And you can trace this back. There's this line of cause and effect. There's this line of cause and effect that you can trace back. And then the reason that you slept last night is because you bought this house. And why'd you buy this house? Because you have this job. And why do you have that job? So that you can make money and because you went to college or whatever it is. And you can trace that back at any point. Pick any point in history and you can trace it back through cause and effect. The cosmological argument is there has to be an unmoved mover. There has to be a first cause that itself has no effect. That first cause, I'm sorry, that first cause rather that itself is not caused that affects everything else. That's what I meant to say. And that we call God. That's the idea. That before you can have this whole series of cause and effect in our own lives and the history of the world and different civilizations and the creation of a star, whatever it is, if you eventually ask, why? Like a little kid. Why? Well, because this reason. Why? Because this reason. Why? Because this reason. Go to bed. Stop asking me why. If you keep pushing that question of why back, you come to a cause of everything that is itself not caused, and through that, that being, everything else comes to be. That is the cosmological argument. You have to have something to start that whole series, that whole sequence of cause and effect. Everybody with me? Okay? This is what a lot of philosophers call an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause. You have to have the first thing in that chain of events that starts everything else. That is the cosmological argument. It can't be a part of that chain, okay? Or else something would have had to cause it. It itself has to be uncaused and be the cause of everything else, okay? Now, this argument works whether or not you're talking about time. If we just go back in time, you eventually need something before time to start time. This also works for causation, okay? Let me read you a quote from Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest thinkers in the Middle Ages, says this. 
This is, a, this is complex. Whenever you read Aquinas, you have to slow down because he says a lot of really powerful things in very, uh, very short amount of time. So we're going to read this slowly, but it's very important. Because effects always depend on some cause, and a cause must exist if its effect exists, that all makes sense, it is therefore impossible that in the same manner and in the same way, anything should be both the one which affects a change and the one that is changed. We do not find anything uh, is the efficient cause of itself, nor is this possible, for the thing would then be prior to itself, which is impossible. How about that? I'd like to see that quote on like a Hallmark card. You just give that to somebody. Here's his, here's his point, okay? If something is affected, it has a cause. Everybody with me on that? That's not, that, that shouldn't be hard to prove. If anything has been affected, it's been affected by something, okay? God cannot be one of those effects or else something would have had to cause him, okay? And you end up falling into an infinite regress. Now, if that's too complex, here's a good way to think about it. So there's a uh, brilliant thinker uh, named Gottfried Leibniz. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Leibniz. He's a uh, uh, modern philosopher. He's very brilliant. He's a Protestant German guy, and uh, he co-invents calculus separately of Newton. So there you go. When you invent calculus, that's pretty good. And a uh, really bright guy. And what he wants to put forward when he talks about God is this. It's called the principle of sufficient reason. It simply means this. Everything must have a reason, okay? Everything must have a reason. Everything that is has to have a reason, or you've moved beyond rational discourse. This is true even if you're an atheist, why did this part evolve? Well, for this reason, for this purpose. Everything has a reason. So here's what Leibniz would say. Why is there something rather than nothing? You ever thought that question? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there anything at all? If there is no God and there is no purpose and there is no causation or whatever it is, you would expect there just to be nothing. Why is there something rather than nothing? And his explanation is because you have to have this reason. You have to have this mind that has a purpose for what it's doing in creating the universe. He says, no fact can be real or existent. No statement true unless there be a sufficient reason why it is so and not otherwise. Okay, that's pretty heady already. You wait till we get to the ontological argument, it gets even worse. So, in your own words, somebody summarize the cosmological argument. You can make it as simple as you want. There's cause and effect and... Yes, if there's a cause, there must be a causer. That's a great way to say it, okay? There's cause and effect. We all agree with that. Atheists agree with that. We all agree with that. And if there is cause and effect, you eventually need something to start the whole process. You need something to start that chain of events or else we never, it never happens, okay? If there's a cause, there has to be a causer, okay? If everything else that's affected, you need one thing that's not affected that itself is just the cause and that we call God, okay? Now, let's critique the cosmological argument. So you say, Zach, I'm not sold. I'm a skeptic. I hate Christianity and I hate you and I hate your khakis. Here's what I think about it. Here are some critiques of the cosmological argument. What some skeptics will say is, why can't the universe just have existed forever? Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. So they'll say, well, Zach, I agree with you that there's, you know, a cause and effect and a cause and effect. And if you keep asking why, and you keep going backwards, then yes, there's cause and effects. Why can't those just keep going forever, they will say? Why can't they, we say that the universe has just always existed? Maybe we don't need a, an uncaused cause. Maybe we don't need a first prime mover. Maybe there's just the universe and a bunch of causes and effects, plural, are happening, okay, are happening. Others will say, Zach, why can't the universe have started itself? Why can't the universe have started itself? 
That's what some people will say in critiquing this argument. Both of those we're going to shoot down. Those are pretty easy to shoot down, but I want to give you another one that's a little bit trickier. To say that each individual thing in the universe has a cause does not allow you to leap to the conclusion that the universe as a whole has a cause. Okay, that's a pretty good critique of this argument. So what they'll say, and I've read this from different atheists, they'll say, I agree with you, everything in the universe has a cause and effect, but that doesn't mean the universe as a whole does. That's what's called the composition fallacy. Let me explain that. Uh, You ever seen it in the NBA where there'll be a team and they spend millions of dollars getting really good athletes, but the team still isn't very good? That happens a lot. You have these hotshot athletes as individuals, they're great. But the team as a whole isn't great because those guys are selfish, you know, selfish, not shellfish like shrimp. Uh, they're selfish and they're jacking up threes from the you know, half court or whatever it might be. And so you can't assume that just because these individual things are cause and effect, there's cause and effect relationship, that the universe as a whole has a cause. That's one critique of the argument. Next, the argument at most shows a first cause but not a personal Trinitarian God, okay? We need to keep that in mind that the argument doesn't prove Christianity, it just refutes atheism if the argument works. Lastly, what is the cause of that first cause? God. If you say it has none, why can't you just say the same thing about the universe? Okay? I don't know if you've ever been talking to your kids and the the conversation goes something like this. Who made me? God did. Who made God? Right? The biblical answer is nobody. Nobody. God didn't even make himself. He's just always existed. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, okay? God's always existed. But what we do is we start to say, well, wait a second. If everything has a cause, then doesn't God need a cause? He's something. Doesn't he need a cause as well? So these are all things that people will try to put forward to refute the cosmological argument. Now, let me give you a few thoughts on some of these refutations, and let's refute the refutations. Does that sound good? A little bit? Okay. In case your faith is just right now on the rocks, you're thinking, Zach, if you don't say some more about the cosmological argument, I'm just going to lose it. I'm just going to go straight to hell if you don't say anything about it. Let me give you some encouraging things, okay? Let's talk about why the universe cannot be eternal, okay? So we all agree there's cause and effect, but some people say, well, Zach, you don't need God. Why can't there just be infinite cause and effect? Why can't this just go on forever? Now, look at me. This is really important because we would never have gotten to today Okay, how long does it take you to count to infinity? Uh, Go ahead, there's a correct answer. Forever, yes, and you still don't get there, okay? How long does it take you to count backwards from infinity? The same, okay? Infinity and you never get there. If you say, well, you got up today and that's why you came here and the reason you got up is because your alarm went off and the reason your alarm went off is because you said it and you trace those cause and effect back, you cannot say that those go on forever or you would have never gotten to today. You would have never gotten your alarm to go off. You would have never gotten to come to theological equipping, whatever it is. You cannot say that there's an infinite regress. It would take infinity to span an infinite regress. And so therefore, there has to be a starting point, okay? Logically, philosophically, there has to be a starting point or else you would have never gotten to any of these effects. The effects we see today could not happen if we had to traverse an infinite series of effects. Okay, so the idea is, so as soon as a skeptic says, okay, I agree, there's cause and effect, but we don't have to say God started that. There didn't have to be a starting point. That could just, the universe could be eternal. If the universe is eternal, you can't get to today. Okay, if the universe is eternal, you can't get to today. Not to mention, that's not even scientific. 
right? If you're a materialist, someone who thinks that the only thing that exists is not God or, you know, our souls or anything like that, it's just material, it's just uh, matter, well, then you don't get to take matter and take it outside of the, the world of physics. You don't get to take it outside of the rules of physics. No effect can be its own cause, scientifically speaking. What you have to have is a being who's outside of time. What you have to have is a being who himself is not caused. What you have to have is a being who is not matter, he's not material, okay? You understand that God does not have a body. He is spirit, he is everywhere, he is infinite. Stop thinking of God as a bigger version of you. That is idolatry, okay? God is an entirely other type of being. And he is outside the bounds of physics, and he is the starting point that starts cause and effect, which eventually gets us to today, which eventually gets us to today. Next thing to say about this, the argument is not meant to show who God is, just that there must be a first cause that is not part of the material universe. So I've been talking, I talk to atheists somehow a lot in my life. I don't know why. I think I like picking fights. I think that's what it is. And, uh, and so I've had one say to me, well, this, okay, I agree, this shows that God exists, but it doesn't show that, that Christianity is true. It's the Christian God. And I say, I'm fine with that, but you don't get to be an atheist. You just agreed there has to be some being that is outside of the material universe so now let's figure out who that is. Now that you can't be an atheist anymore by your own admission, now we got to figure out which is the right God. But once I've got you there, I've got you, okay? Once I've got you there, you're trapped. That's the goal. Again, it's not actually to help and love people, it's to embarrass them, okay? That's a joke. That's a joke. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, okay? The concept of God is unlike the concept of a physical universe that must function according to physical laws. So when people say everything has a cause, so therefore God has a cause. They've confused creation, what does have to have a cause, with creator, God who is unlike. God is not just one being that is like everything else he's made. He's an entirely different kind of being. Everything that exists fits into one of two categories, creator or creation, okay? Father, Son, and Spirit fit into creator. Everything else is creation, and there is an infinite gap between those. Okay? God must condescend to speak to us. He must condescend. Christ must take on flesh so that we can uh, feel him and so that we can see him and these kind of things. God, because there's this infinite gap, takes upon himself a way to communicate to humans. But you need to understand that when we talk of God, we are not talking about this old man with a beard in the clouds. We are talking about a, that's Zeus, by the way. A lot of Christians, when they think of God, they're thinking of Zeus, right? This old man with a beard that says kapow and zap and does that. That's not the biblical notion of God. That's not the historic Christian notion of God, okay? God is a uh, holy other. Good on the cosmological argument? You good? You could write a thesis on it? Everybody good with this one? You're, is this helpful, confusing? Okay, good. The people that are confused are like, I'm not saying it. I'm not going to tell them in front of everybody. That's embarrassing, Okay. Well, hang in there. Again, you might have to listen to this lecture more than once, but I think it will encourage your faith. This is one of those arguments that has helped me on times where I'm really questioning the faith to realize if there is no God and everything is just material, we couldn't have gotten to today. There could be no effects. It can't go on forever. There has to be a starting point, and that starting point must be outside of the material universe, okay? So I've actually found it encouraging in my own faith, and I hope that you do as well. Now, we're gonna move on to the most difficult argument for God's existence to understand, but in my opinion, the most irrefutable uh, argument for God's existence, okay? Even guys who are certainly no friend to Christianity, Immanuel Kant thinks this is the strongest argument for God's existence, though he doesn't agree with it. There's a famous atheistic philosopher, his name's Bertrand Russell, 
okay? He taught at both Cambridge and Oxford, and he is just, he hates Christianity. He's really, really bright. He tries to turn all of language into math. That's one of his goals, okay? To make a perfectly logical system of language. Name's Bertrand Russell. And one day, he's walking around the campus, and he is smoking his pipe, as he would do, and he is thinking about the ontological argument. And in the middle of walking, he stops, and he throws up his tin of tobacco, and he goes, the ontological argument is sound, but unpersuasive. And he keeps going, okay? So it's hard to refute. Even if you're a staunch atheist, you hate God, it's a very hard argument to refute, but it also is hard for a lot of people to understand because it's going to think in categories that we as postmodern 21st century Westerners don't typically think in. So let me explain it, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this one because I like this one. I've, I like this argument a lot. I've spent a lot of time reading and thinking and writing about this argument. Let me explain it first of all. Why is it called the ontological argument? The Greek word ontos means being. It means existence. Okay, that's what ontos means. If you ever hear ontology, that's the study of being. If you ever hear somebody say ontological, so when I say that God is ontologically different than us, what I mean is his being is different than our being, okay? That is what the idea of ontos means, ontological. Now, it was Immanuel Kant that popularized the name ontological argument. Before him, throughout the Middle Ages, this argument is called the Argumentum Anselmi, Anselm's argument, and we'll talk about why in just a second. But I also want you to see, the Bible is not going to come out and speak in these kind of philosophical terms. But I do think that this argument does agree with the concept of God in the Bible. Let me mention a few passages here. Psalm 92. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Notice that God has always existed. He has always been God. Infinity backwards and infinity forward, okay? From everlasting to everlasting. Before anything exists, there's just God, Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity until God makes the world. Okay, until God makes the universe. But notice here that the Bible is saying that God exists. He's always existed and he must exist. Okay? Or if you want to look in uh, Acts 17, 27 to 28. Uh, Paul is trying to prove God's existence. He's actually quoting pagan poets, pagan philosophers, which means he's reading the literature of his day. He's not huddled, staying away from culture, but he's reading the literature of his day. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Look at this next phrase. For in him we live and move and have our what? Our being. What he's saying there is God obviously exists because how else would we exist? Okay? This doesn't mean that God is like, uh, like we're part of God or that God is like the world or something like that. It's not that God is air and we're walking around in God. That's not the idea. The idea is that the reason we exist at all is because something has made us exist. Okay? Something has made us exist. We'll talk more about this in a second. Or even God's name, Exodus 3.14. Out of all the names that God could have given Moses, it says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Who is God? He's the only one that is. He is the one who exists. He is the one who brought everything else into being. Okay? So, with that in mind, we're going to try to explain the uh, ontological argument the best we can. Proponents of the argument. St. Anselm, Rene Descartes, Gottfried Leibniz, Jonathan Edwards, okay? Jonathan Edwards talks so much about God being pure existence, God being pure being, that some of his opponents accuse him of pantheism. Now, he's not a pantheist. He does not believe that everything is God. That's not the point. They misunderstand Edwards. But he is a big proponent of this idea. And then Alvin Plantinga is a, a recent proponent of uh, this, uh, this argument as well. Now, 
let me explain a few things about the argument because uh, this is a tough one. Okay. Take my cell phone. Tell me the most basic thing about this cell phone. You can make a phone call. There's something more. Who said that? It is. That's more basic. Yes, it can make phone calls. Yes, I can play Angry Birds. Yes, I can text, whatever it is. The most basic thing about this phone is it exists. Check it out. Check out the difference between that phone and this one. You see? Okay. Now, here's what you need to understand. We exist contingently, meaning we didn't have to exist. God could have never created the universe. You understand that? God could have made everyone in the universe except you. Mm, I'm sorry, you're not special, okay? Uh, God could have made the universe and had the sky be red instead of blue, whatever it might be, okay? Everything that has been made exists contingently, right? Our, Our existence didn't have to happen. God could have just thought of us and then never made us, or he could have not thought of us at all, or whatever he wanted to do, okay? God, though, is a necessarily existent being. He must exist. That is one of the big differences between creator and creation. Creation is contingent. We need God for us to exist. In him we live and move and have our being, okay? If he should withdraw his hand, that all flesh would turn to dust, as the Bible will say, okay? That we, we don't exist apart from him. He, however, must exist. Existence is a necessary quality of God, okay? It's a necessary quality of God. You exist and God exists. What's the difference? God must exist. He can't not exist. To think of God as not existing is not to think of God. Whereas we could have been created or not. We're not important like God is. We are contingent. He is necessary, okay? Let me say this a few other ways before we get into the argument. I'm just trying to prep your mind for when we talk about these. This is the most difficult concept you're going to have probably this semester when we talk about being in existence. When you read ancient theologians, they will talk about God as being, capital B, okay? Being or existence. What does that mean? Let me give you a few examples. When we say that God is love, do we mean that there's a standard of love just above God And God's like, okay, well, I want to be loving too, so I need to do this and this and this. Is that what we mean? No, we mean God is that standard. What is love? It's whatever corresponds to God's character. He's the standard of love. He doesn't conform to some higher standard. Are you with me? When we say that God is true or that he is truth, does he look at all the things that are true and just say, okay, I need to make sure that I'm going to stand? He is the one that determines those things, okay? He is the standard of truth. He is the standard of goodness. He is the standard of strength. He is the standard of love. Now listen, he is the standard of existence as well. He is the standard of being. Let me phrase it another way for you. Before the universe exists, to exist and to be God are the same thing. Before the universe exists, to exist and to be God are the same thing. Are the same thing, okay? What something is, for us, is different than whether or not it exists. Those are the exact same thing for God. His essence is existence. He is a being that must exist. Now, whoo, that's a lot. So everybody take a big breath. Relax, clear your mind. Think about happy thoughts, good thoughts, because we're going to now get into the ontological argument, now that we've talked about existence and God and these kind of things. Here's the ontological argument, the way that it's given by Anselm. Number one, think of a being that has every positive attribute to the highest degree. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead and feel free. Think of a being that has strength to the highest degree. You doing that? 
Good. Think of a being that has love to the highest degree. Think of a being that has kindness to the highest degree. Think of a being that has existence to the highest degree. Think of a being that has every good quality to the highest degree. You with me so far? Okay, that's step one. You've already done it. You've done it. Not that you fully can grasp God, but you get the concept. That's the idea, okay? Step two is now this. Would this being be greater if it existed in reality or just in your mind? Conclusion, therefore, this being must exist. <laughs> okay, wait a second, Zach. Wait, wait, wait a second. I'm confused. Okay, so you're saying, so you're saying, think of a being that has every good attribute to the highest degree. Got it. Now, if I think of this being as just existing in my mind and not in reality, I've contradicted myself. I've gone back on step number one. I told myself that I was thinking of a being to the highest degree, but as soon as I thought that being might just exist in my mind and not in reality, well, now I've taken a step back, and he's not the greatest being. He's not a, quote, being greater than which none can be thought. What's happening? Let's unpack this, okay? Let's unpack this. I'm seeing people get sweaty and fall asleep. Listen. I'm going to do it this way. Let me do it this way. So when my daughter, she's two, she's adorable. She loves horses and these kind of things. At one point, she's going to ask me for a pony, okay? And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, okay, sweetie, close your eyes. I want you to think of a pony, whatever pony you want. It can be a big pony. It can be a small pony. It can be pink. She loves pink. It can be a unicorn. It can be a pony with a horn coming out of its head. It can be full of magic. And I'm saying, are you thinking of that? And she says, yeah. And I say, okay, now open your eyes. I've just given you a pony. She'd say, wait a second. That, that wasn't the best pony. A real pony would be way better than my thought pony. And I will say, yes, dear, now you're on your way to understanding the ontological argument. <laughs> okay? The idea is that God is a being that when you actually are thinking of God, you're thinking of a being that must exist. You're thinking of a being that must exist in reality, not just in your mind. Okay? Not just in your mind. So when you think of a, a thought horse is not as good as a real horse. Everybody agree? Somebody tweet that out later. All right? A thought horse is not as good as a real horse. A thought God is not as good as a real God. And that's what we're saying. We're saying, if you're saying to yourself, I'm thinking of a being greater than which none can be thought, and I'm also thinking that that being might not exist, I've contradicted myself. One of those cannot be, the, the, those two things are intention. They are contradictions. You have made a, a misstep in your thinking somewhere if that is the way that you are thinking about it, okay? Now, let me give you some critiques of the argument, and then I'll give you some further thoughts on the ontological argument. And again, we'll have Q&A. Jared's helping with Q&A this morning, so just feel free to crush him, all right? Just feel free to crush him. A few things. Let me explain what we're saying. We are not saying that if you can think of a great thing, it might exist. This is the most common misunderstanding of the ontological argument. People think, okay, Zach, you're telling me if I think of God in my mind, then he also exists in reality. I can do that with all kinds of things. There's a monk who writes against Anselm. His name's Guanilo. And he says, okay, Anselm, let me give you an example. I'm thinking of the most perfect island, okay? It has perfect weather all the time. It has palm trees. It has beautiful hula girls. He doesn't say hula girls. He's a monk, right? He doesn't say that. It has delicious tropical drinks. It is the most perfect island. Well, this island would be more perfect if it existed in reality than just in my mind. Is that what you're saying? And Anselm writes him back and just tears him apart because that's not what Anselm is saying at all. This argument only works for God. 
He's not saying, can you think of something as really great? He's saying, can you think of a being greater than which none can be thought? There's only one thing that fits into that category. And it's not an island or a sweet car or a jet or something like that. It's only God. It's only a being that has every quality to the highest degree. An island does not have that. The very fact that it's an island means that it's created. The very fact that it's an island means it's limited. So we're not saying if you can think of God in your mind, he must exist in reality. We're saying if you can think of the greatest possible being and then immediately turn around and not think of him as the greatest possible being because he might not exist, you've contradicted yourself. That's what we're saying in the argument, okay? Next critique against the ontological argument. This is the most famous critique of the ontological argument. It comes from none other than Immanuel Kant. Uh, When you talk about the greatest thinkers and philosophers of all time, Kant is in the top three or four, okay? So he is a brilliant thinker. He's super evil. His philosophy has led to everything bad in the world, but he's smart, okay? Kind of like the devil. Smart, but really bad, okay? And uh, here's what he says about the ontological argument. He says that existence being is not a predicate. What does he mean by that? It's not an attribute that you can apply to something like you can redness or bigness or tallness. What does that mean? Let me give you an example. This is a fun little thought experiment. Everybody look at this board here. What color is this board? White. Okay. Now close your eyes, thinking of the whiteboard. Now think of it as green. Did the image in your mind change? Yes or no? Yes. Now think of it as red. Did the image in your mind change? Now think of it as bigger than it is, where it's taking up the whole stage. Did the image in your mind change? Okay. Now think of it as existing. Did anything in your mind change? No, it did not. You assume existence as soon as you start talking about the whiteboard. So what Kant will say is that as soon as you're talking, as soon as you say that existence has to be one of these attributes of God, He says, you're already assuming what you're trying to prove. You're arguing in a circle. You're assuming this existence of God. That's why you're even talking about him. And then you say, oh, by the way, he happens to have existence. Kant says, but if we wish to think existence through the pure category alone, then we must not be surprised that we cannot indicate any mark whereby to distinguish existence from mere possibility. Okay? From mere possibility. Let's turn this argument around backwards. I had an atheist email me recently. They just do this. They have an agenda. You know, it's almost like they have an agenda. Doesn't go here. He literally just sent me an email and he said, I just read your church's blog on the ontological argument and I think you're so dumb and bad and stupid. What about a perfectly evil being, is what he said. He said, what about a being that is the most evil? It has no good qualities. Wouldn't that being be more evil if it existed in reality than just in your mind? Okay? Now, the refutation to that is you don't understand if a being is completely, totally evil and has no good qualities, it doesn't exist. Okay? Even the devil has some good qualities in that he was created by God. He's smart. He's cunning. He has some good attributes. If a thing has no good attributes, then it doesn't even have existence. It doesn't exist at all. Okay? That's the refutation of that. And so I started typing a response, and I thought, this feels like a pearls before swine thing. I think I'm going to delete this. Okay? But keep in mind, you can't reverse the argument because a perfectly evil being is not a thing. It doesn't exist at all. Because if it has no goodness, then it doesn't even have existence, which is a goodness, because God makes things and he makes them good. Further thoughts. Okay, here we go. One, God is unique and his being is unlike other things that exist. St. Augustine says it this way. 
when you think of God and you think that you comprehend him, you are not thinking of God, okay? You cannot think fully of an infinite being. He's that far beyond you. God is gracious. He condescends. What the Bible says about God is true. We don't fully grasp everything that means, but we know true things about God. We know that he's Trinity. We know that he's loving. We know that salvation is only found in Christ, etc. because the Bible tells us. But we don't know all the, how great that is. When the Bible says, I, I can know that God loves me, but I don't know what that really means if I really think of God's love compared to mine. I know what it's like to love other people, but that's not what it is for God loving me. So understand, when we talk about God, our language grasp at this, this phantom. It, 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 we're doing the best we can. All we have is human speech, though God is so much beyond us. I want you to keep that in mind. Now listen to this next part. So if you're completely confused and you're like, Zach, that did not make any sense. I'm never coming back to this church. I'm going to Watered Down Church where they just, they just tell you to be happy and five steps to have a good marriage and these kind of things, okay? Listen, let me summarize this for you and make it as simple as possible. Look at this line here in your notes. It's the second point under further thoughts. The argument is not that if you can think of God, he must exist. The argument is that if you think of the greatest being and then think that he might not exist, you've contradicted yourself. Anselm is showing that the person who denies God is being logically inconsistent. Yes, he's proving the existence of God, but mainly he's doing polemics. He's shooting down those who would say there is no God. He, he mentions it from the, uh, the Psalms. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And he uses that to talk about this kind of idea. So the argument is simply this. If you say God doesn't exist, you've contradicted yourself because what we mean by God is a being that must exist. It is a being that is greater than which none can be thought, okay? That is what we mean when we talk about God. Let me give you some quotes from Anselm and then a long one from Descartes, and we'll unpack this a little bit more. This is from St. Anselm. Listen to this. If that than which a greater cannot be thought can be thought of as not existing, this very thing than which greater can be thought is not than that which a greater cannot be thought. That's clear. His whole point is, if you think of this greatest being, and then you say, well, he might not actually be the greatest, then you're not thinking of the greatest being. It's very clear. It's extremely logical. It's like if one is two and two is one, then one is one or whatever. So, okay. But this is contradictory. But how did he, the fool who denies God's existence, manage to say in his heart what he could not think? Or how is it that he was unable to think what he said in his heart? Here's what he's saying. When an atheist says, God doesn't exist, what do they mean by God? A being that must exist. They're saying, is there, is there a, okay, some storm, something, I don't know. Unre unrepentant sin causing our mics to pop from one of you, one of you sinners, or me. Uh, the idea is that as soon as you, he, he's just showing there's a contradiction in your mind. You're thinking of this greatest being and then you're not thinking of him as the greatest being. That's what he's trying to show is the contradiction. If that's unclear, let me read this quote from Rene Descartes, who I think gives a really helpful illustration. But granted, I can no more think of God as not existing than I can think of a mountain without a valley. Nevertheless, it surely does not follow from the fact that I think of a mountain with a valley that a mountain actually exists. Likewise, from the fact that I think of God as existing, it does not seem to follow that God exists. From the fact that I am, un I am unable to think of a mountain without a valley, it do does not follow that a mountain or a valley exists anywhere, but only that, whether they exist or not, a mountain and a valley are inseparable from one another. But from the fact that I cannot think of God except as existing, it follows that existence is inseparable from God. And that for this reason, he really exists. Not that my thought brings this about or imposes any necessity on anything, 
but rather the necessity of the thing itself, namely of the existence of God, forces me to think this. For I am not free to think of God without existence. That is a supremely perfect being without a supreme perfection, as I am to imagine a horse with or without wings, like a pegasus. Here's what he's saying. Everybody think of a triangle. Okay? Everybody thinking of a triangle? Okay? Everybody know what a triangle is? I, I can draw it. I can draw it. It won't be perfect. Okay? It might turn out like an oval, but I can draw it. Okay? When you think of a triangle, who in here thinks of that triangle as having three lines? Everyone, okay? Did we make any triangles exist by doing that? No. The point is, when you think of a triangle, you must think of it with three lines. When you think of a mountain, you must think of it with valleys. Whether it exists or not, those two thoughts go together. When you think of God, you must think of him as existing. Whether he exists or not, those two thoughts must go together. As soon as you say God, it's like saying triangle. And in the same way that three lines are needed for a triangle, existence is needed to have the concept of God. That's the idea, okay? That's the idea. There's another version of this argument. If this wasn't difficult enough, there's another version of this argument. I'm just giving you a bunch, hoping the little stick. I'm just throwing everything against the wall, hoping one little thing will stick and that you'll be encouraged. And it comes from a guy named Alvin Plantinga. Who's Alvin Plantinga? He is uh, the top philosophy of religion guy in the world. He's a professor at Notre Dame. He is a reformed Protestant, Amen. And he uh, teaches at Notre Dame, which is a Catholic school. See, you can do both. And, uh, and so he has his own version of the ontological argument. I don't want to get too into it because it's pretty heady. It's like 17 steps, whereas uh, Anselm's was like three. Uh, but here's basically the idea. In philosophy, you'll sometimes hear people talk about what are called possible worlds. You ever heard that language? Now, this is not what we mean in science when people talk about a multiverse or other universes or something like that. In philosophy, a possible world is a way that God could have made the universe, okay? Okay? Not that it actually exists, but it's a way God could have made the universe, okay? So could God have made the universe with a red sky or the earth with a red sky? Yeah, that's a possible universe. Could he have made a universe in which Tim Hollis doesn't exist? Yes, and should have, right? Could God make a universe in which all the stars are green instead of appearing white to us or whatever it is? Yes, okay. Can God, though, make a universe where there are square circles? Can God make a universe where there are logical contradictions? Can God make a universe where something both is and is not at the same time? No, those aren't things to be done. That's a logical contradiction. If you don't want to know what that is, listen to our lecture on absolute truth, okay? Here's what Plantinga says. If, if it's possible that a necessary being, God, exists in any possible world, then he necessarily exists in all of them. Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? If it's possible that there's a necessary being, then he's necessary. That's basically Plantinga's argument. You can read it online. Don't do that. You'll hate yourself, but it's helpful. It's really smart. I don't know how to refute it. It's a really good argument, but, uh, but there you go. His whole point is just trying, here's all the argument is. Forget everything I've told you and just focus on this. God necessarily has existence. Notice how many things exist contingently. Everything that we see exists contingently. Okay, I exist, you exist, this chair exists, this stage exists. If these things exist contingently, there must be a necessary being that stands behind it. There must be a necessary existence that allows everything else that is to be. Okay? Let's talk about Jonathan Edwards. 
Okay, I like ending with Edwards, and I'll give you some final thoughts. Jonathan Edwards has his own version of the ontological argument, though he doesn't call it that. He doesn't think in those categories, but this is a helpful thing. Listen to what he says here. What he's going to say is, whereas we're defining God as a being that must exist, he is going to say its opposite is impossible. Okay, he's going to say its opposite. We're saying this God must exist. He's going to say the opposite of that is actually a logical impossibility, so therefore God exists. So he's going to shoot down the other option. Listen to what he says. That there should be I'm sorry, that there should absolutely be nothing at all is utterly impossible. The mind can never let it stretch its conceptions ever so much, bring itself to conceive of a state of perfect nothing. Indeed, we can mean nothing else by nothing but a state of absolute contradiction. And if a man thinks that he can think well enough how there should be nothing, all engage that what he means by nothing is as much something as anything that ever he thought in his life. So that we see it is necessary, some being, i.e. God, should eternally be. Here's Edwards' argument. Close your eyes again and think of nothing. Think of absence of thing. You can't do it. You say, yeah, I am, Zach. I'm thinking of just black space. You're thinking of blackness and you're thinking of space. Okay? You cannot think of nothing. Nothing, wait for it, doesn't exist. And so his whole point is because nothingness is impossible, there must be something. And that something that eternally is, is God. Okay? You can read that. It's on his essay uh, of being uh, that you can read by Jonathan Edwards if you want to know more about it. Okay, Zach, what does this have to do with our practical life? Let me give you some final thoughts and some applications. Number one, do you understand the four proofs for God's existence that we have studied over the past two weeks? Teleological, moral, cosmological, and ontological. Number two, which proofs do you think are the most persuasive and why? Which proofs do you think are the most persuasive and why? By the way, just as a, an encouragement, if this is your first time to theological equipping, they will not always be this confusing, okay? So come back. We have good, we have good things for you to learn that are not me rambling about unicorns, okay? So, uh, so come back for that. Number three. What are some problems that all the proofs share? What are some problems that all the proofs share? These might be some good, theologi- uh, some good uh, community group questions, by the way. Not for today. You should be watching the Super Bowl with your community group like any good American. But the next community group, okay? Number four, how effective are these arguments at encouraging people who already have faith? How, with an E at the end. Does yours have an E at the end? Sorry about that. That's like somebody's last name or something. No matter how many times I proofread these, I miss it. I also see if you look up above Edward's quotes, it says, it is opposite is impossible. There's supposed to be no apostrophe there. But uh, again, I have little kids and I'm fallible. How effective are they at convincing an atheist of God's existence? Okay. How helpful are they at convincing an atheist of God's existence? I guarantee if you sit down with an atheist and you give them the ontological argument, they will not get on their knees and repent. Because you're only saved through the gospel. What these proofs show is that you can't be an atheist. That's all they show. But they don't show you how you need forgiveness. They don't show you the cross. They don't show you the resurrection. They don't show you any of those things. For that, you need the gospel. The problem with broken humanity is not that we're not smart enough. It's that we hate God. It's that we're full of sin. We're born totally depraved. We hate our maker. The solution is a spiritual solution. The problem is a spiritual problem. Yes, these intellectual things can help overcome barriers. They can get rid of some stumbling blocks, making it easier to believe. But even when I say that, I don't know what I mean. 
Everyone's equally dead in sin. What do I mean easier to believe? At the end of the day, people need the gospel. There are literally cases of atheists that would go to Billy Graham rallies to try to just stir up trouble and would get saved. And Billy Graham didn't give them the cosmological argument. He just preached the gospel. Conversely, there are guys that devote their entire life to defending these arguments for God's existence, and they don't see many converts. So yes, these things are helpful. We want to think of God rightly. We want to be intelligent. We want to love God with our mind. But at the end of the day, what people need is Christ. It's like Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples by your ontological argument. Right? So let me pray as Jared comes up with some questions, and we will do a little Q&A. Let's pray. Almighty God, forgive us for thinking of you oftentimes just as a big version of us. Romans 1 condemns that when people make idols even of humans. That is idolatry. You don't look like us. You don't look like creation. You are invisible. You are infinite. You are Trinity. So we just confess that we have a tendency to see you wrongly. We have a tendency to doubt your existence. We need help. I pray that these, uh, these proofs would encourage our faith. I pray that we would realize that we have good arguments for why we believe what we believe, but at the end of the day, it's because there's an empty tomb. And at the end of the day, it's because the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, has been given to our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Would you help us? Would you guide us? We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.